New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia and co-host of this channel. The political protests of the Red Shirts movement in Thailand in April-May 2010 ended in tragedy, with security forces killing over 90 people and injuring thousands more. Thailand's political protests have been studied from many different angles, but perhaps the most unusual approach to this subject is to be found in Benjamin Talsing's book, Bangkok is Ringing, Sound, Protest and Constraint. The book is a study of the sounds that accompanied the protests, music, rally speeches, sound trucks, mobile phone ringtones, whistleblowers, hand clappers, and much more. All these sounds, as it were, pulse with meaning. But there's a fascinating theoretical argument that weaves through this book, and that is that constraints on movements in the political realm are reflected in constraints on movements in the sonic world. Benjamin Talsig is Assistant Professor of Ethnomusicology in the Department of Music at Stony Brook University. Benjamin, thanks for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Congratulations on your book. I enjoyed reading it. Thank you, Patrick. Before we discuss the book, could I start off by asking you to tell us something about yourself? You seem to be a person who is particularly sensitive to sound and noise. How did you first become interested in the anthropology of music and sound? Yes, well, I trained in a department of ethnomusicology or in a department of music as an ethnomusicologist. And sound studies had been around for a little while when I began, but it was really hitting its stride when I started grad school in 2006. That also happened to be the time that, of course, political protest was really ramping up in Thailand, which was the area that I, the geographical area that I decided to study. So on a trip to Bangkok in 2007, I began thinking about ways that I could kind of fuse the anthropology of sound with politics and political protest in Bangkok. Then when I got a Fulbright to research in Thailand. It so happened that I came at precisely the time that the red shirt protests were hitting their, their absolute acme in May of 2010. That kind of solidified the applicability of sound studies to this, the political situation in Thailand. For listeners who may not be familiar with this discipline, can you say something about the discipline of sound studies in which you work? Yes. So sound studies is a field that you know people trace to different beginnings, but oftentimes it begins with uh, a couple of key figures. One is uh, Stephen Feld, who's an anthropologist by training and who sort of practices as an anthropologist, in fact, a linguistic anthropologist. His major contribution to linguistic anthropology was thinking about sound as a system of meaning, which he, over the course of uh, a long research career, primarily in Papua New Guinea, although now also in Ghana. Uh, and then there's also a, a kind of a parallel tradition to that, which is a kind of an ecological tradition that comes out of a group of, of people who call themselves acoustic ecologists. And they sort of in the 1960s concurrent 
with other ecological movements were thinking about the health of what they called the soundscape. So those are a couple of parallel traditions which then get taken up in various ways and kind of gel into a discipline right around the turn of the century and right around 2000. And you get a, a lot of people doing a variety of projects in sound, so studying sonic cultures, the ways that people listen, the ways that human communities produce sound that are kind of unique in time and space. So it's very much an anthropological discipline, although there's also a kind of a historical wing where scholars try to sort of reconstruct histories of listening or histories of sound and space in past times and places. Why did you decide to write this particular book? Why do you think its subject is important and what did you hope to achieve by writing it? Well, the book kind of fuses two or attempts to address two audiences. One is in Asian studies or Thai studies, and the other is in the anthropology of sound or sound studies. It attempts a contribution to both of those intellectual traditions. Within sound studies, it's an attempt to think about the ways that sound is actually quite limited, because sound studies has had this tendency to romanticize sound as the special materiality that, that has a capacity to do things that, for example, that visuality does not. Often in the history of sound studies, you get this kind of contrast between sound and vision, where vision is linear, directional, and sound breaks through these sorts of linear borders and defies modernity. And it's a very kind of romantic discourse that's been criticized in many ways. My contribution to that critique was to try to talk about the ways that, you know, in protest events and protest movements, people try to make sound that will penetrate, serve as a magic bullet for, you know, reaching the right person's ears and having exactly the right kind of political effect. But actually, much more often, people who make sound at political protests, which is basically everybody, are faced with the sort of frustration of the limits of their sound making and the limits of their ability to reach other people. That kind of frustration and that condition that was so apparent within political protest was, was kind of what I wanted to say to sound studies. To Asian studies, or to Thai studies in particular, it was a, maybe a slightly more banal contribution. For one thing, I wanted to focus on ordinary red shirts, not on the leadership. So the book is not a study of the higher ups in the UDD. It's not a study of politicians. It's a study of ordinary people and ordinary red shirts and their process and their, their sort of struggle to construct something meaningful out of this protest movement. The book is also very deliberately structured as this kind of uh, heterogeneous set of stories or set of arguments, which is supposed to bring home the heterogeneity of the movement. Because often the red shirts, both by scholars and critics of the movement, they're, they're painted as being sort of singular, all lining up behind Toxine and all having basically one rather mindless point to make. And what I found, you know, spending a year and a half among these people is that there was really an extraordinary difference uh, or set of differences between the way that people thought about politics and what people wanted from politics. So for Asian studies and Thai studies, it was, it, it was really about kind of capturing that heterogeneity and telling those stories ethnographically. Before we delve into some of the main themes of the book, could you give the listener kind of a broad overview of what the book is about? So the book begins with those spring months in 2010. It talks about the violence in those moments, these kind of spectacular, you know, newsworthy episodes, you know, the burning of the city. But it very quickly then goes into the aftermath of that. And the bulk of the book is set in the period of about a year after the crackdown in May until the election of Yim Lak in was it June or July 2011. So the book is really about the kind of evolution of the movement in the aftermath of this violence, this kind of collective attempt to reckon with what had happened and to build a new protest movement that could kind of function in the aftermath of this trauma. You start the book in a what I think is quite a unique way. 
when most writers represent a scene of critical protest, they'll usually, you know, to use a cliche, paint a picture of, of what they saw. But you bombard the reader with a with a this sort of montage of sounds associated with the protests, and so you create a sort of a sound picture, if that makes sense. Could can you say perhaps something about how important the, the sound environment is for protest ethnography? What's fascinating to me about sound at protests is that. You know, you show up at a protest, whether it's one that you know well or one that you're a part of or just one that you're interested in and maybe know nothing about. And your kind of first question is like, what, what is this about? You know, you're searching for, for the single kind of take home. But at any protest that I've ever been to, you're never presented with that. What hits you actually is the chaos of it, the way that people are talking over each other, the, the way that they're competing with each other, the way that there's really not a lot of sense being made at all. Actually, the main thing that's happening is that sound and meaning or meaning is being upended by sound. So sound isn't kind of like giving you an obvious, direct, clear picture of what this movement is, but rather kind of announcing a kind of a general unhappiness or unease. And, you know, that's true also about things other than sound at protests, right? They're also full of chaotic bodies moving in different directions, but they tend not to be unified. They tend not to be sort of singular and to have one statement. So I wanted to, in, in the, the early parts of the book, really capture that confusion, that chaos, because it is a fact of these protests and it was a fact of the redshirt protests. And how do we deal intellectually with, with the fact of that chaos? I have to admit, when I started reading the book, I found it a little hard to follow because of the, this unusual focus on, on sound and also your use of a new conceptual language, like with terms like ecotones and sonic spaces and sonic niches. But as, as I got into the book, I was, I was actually taken in by the style and it began to, as, as it does, you know, it began to feel more familiar. And it, it struck me that it, it, was, it was not just a work of ethnographic description, but it had a kind of a, a literary quality to it, a certain literary quality. Did you plan it this way to suit the, the subject matter you were dealing with? Or is that just the way that the writing came out? A little bit of both. I wanted to find a middle ground between scholarly writing and poetic writing. And whether the book succeeds in that regard, I, I don't know. It was written as a dissertation. It was revised. A lot of it was written in the process of doing fieldwork. So many of these are kind of adapted field notes. Those parts of it are definitely meant to evoke the presence within the movement that I think is one of the, the assets of, of the way that the research was done was that it was, you know, it was very much an immersed kind of project. So it's, I mean, it's been interesting to me to hear people's responses to the style of the writing. I certainly deliberately avoided, you know, the drier style of academic theoretical writing. I didn't want to be too indulgent. I wanted it to be readerly. And many of the revisions were about sort of doing exactly that, um, trying to make it more readerly and direct. But at the same time, I did want to leave in a certain amount of the poetic stuff precisely as, as you were sort of mentioning before and as we were talking about, to be able to evoke the uncertainty, the vagueness, the chaos, what is sometimes called in certain quarters of, of anthropological theory, mess. You know, the fact that there are things that occur that, that, are not that, that do not get reconciled. You also seem to have experimented with the book's structure. Some chapters are regulation length, others a page and a half, and then I think there's one chapter which is just one paragraph. What were you thinking when you organised the book in that way? Well, I originally wrote those chapters, uh, what are now chapters, as interludes. And I think that's a, a more common way of introducing that kind of material, right? You, you know, sometimes you see books with, with interludes that are kind of set apart as their own particular space. But my committee was, was in unanimous agreement, and I came to, to understand their point, that it might make sense to elevate 
those sections to, to being chapters themselves. The, the notion of having many chapters represent the heterogeneity of the movement itself was something that I had thought about very early. Once, once I had decided to elevate the interludes to chapters, I felt that that gesture was conveyed a lot, much, much more strongly. Because then you had a book that really, and, and this is explicit in the introduction, that it's saying, you know, all these different parts represent different kinds of spaces. And they really do. There was a point late in the research when I started thinking about that as a writing structure explicitly, and I started walking around the protest camps and taking note of how large particular spaces were, basically how much value they had to the movement, um, how much value they had to the protest events, and thinking about how much space they should have within the book uh, in order to represent their importance to the movement. That's kind of how the structure evolved. In a way, I don't know if I'm overthinking this, but that sort of irregular structure with some short chapters, some long ones, some very short ones, in a way maybe represents, sort of partly represents that sort of the chaotic nature of the protests that you mentioned, where where the meaning isn't maybe quite as linear as we uh, tend to feel academic writing probably should be. I mean that in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, there are moments that, you know, when you, when you go to a protest event that large, uh, there are sounds that burst into, into audibility in this way that almost overwhelms you. And then 30 seconds later, somebody realizes it's too loud or the CD starts skipping or they want to play a different song and it's over. Some of those moments, some of those sonic moments really don't last very long. And it's not to say that they're not meaningful, but they're brief, right? They're emergent. And that's their nature. That's their existence is, as that's this thing that is only there for, for a few seconds. Is it a fair question to ask whether, you did touch on this earlier, whether you were aiming more at the Asian studies readership or a sonic studies readership? It's about 50-50. I think I went back and forth during the writing, and that might be apparent in what, who, is, who and what is being cited in different chapters. So there's, you know, there's some chapters like chapter 7, for example, which is very much a sound studies chapter. That's the one about quiet. So in, in chapter 7, I'm talking about three different case studies of protesters who were using quiet or even silence, even even pure silence, to try to make a point. And, you know, that's all about the way that, that protesters use dynamics, the way that loudness is not equal to intensity in the context of protests. So, you know, I'm talking to this, I uh, interviewed this, this man who sat for often 15 hours at a time, absolutely still meditating, didn't make a single sound, and was this major object of attention precisely because he was so quiet, so silent, with all this loud sound around him. So what mattered for him was, was, was the contrast, was, was the dy- dynamic contrast between him and the rest of the loud movement. Uh, so that's a point that's, that's pretty portable within sound studies, this kind of theoretical point about how quiet sometimes can be more intense than, than loud sound. That was very much aimed towards sound studies. The stuff that kind of talks about neoliberalism, that's more directed, for example, towards a, a Thai studies or Asian studies audience and thinking about the ways that protests were, were kind of drawn into these very particular relationships with, with money, uh, including people who are, you know, musicians who are earning a living for, in, in some cases, more than a year by playing uh, at redshirt events. That's something that I think is ultimately probably more of interest to an Asian studies crowd, although I found that some uh, sound studies and ethnomusicology readers have picked that up uh, as, a, as an area of interest as well. It's pretty obvious throughout the book that you shared at least some of the political aims of the red shirt protesters, and I think you mentioned this in the acknowledgements, where you dedicate the book to those people who who were killed in the protests. How important to you was it that you wrote this book for those who were affected by, indeed, killed or injured in in these protests? Extremely important. I think that my my sympathy for the red shirts is complicated and, uh, and, and comes back to this point about the heterogeneity of the movement. I mean, there were people 
who uh, I never had a productive conversation with um, within the red shirts, you know, who I absolutely disagreed with about everything. Like many scholars, I'm not a fan of Taksin. You know, with some red shirts, that was, that was kind of a deal breaker. But others, I think, had it exactly right. We're striving within an imperfect movement to try to build toward something that they wanted politically for the right reasons. I, I guess that ended up being a lot of leftists, perhaps predictably, but those people affiliated themselves with the red shirts. So they found within the red shirts a space for expression. I want to kind of qualify the, the idea that I was sympathetic to the red shirts to say that I was sympathetic to some sure. red shirts. In, in terms of those who, who were killed, I, I think the ideological similarities and differences matter a lot less. And, you know, I, I think at the very minimum, you know, the movement as such was, was legitimate and had the right to appear that everything that happened in the spring was, was an atrocity that, uh, you know, it, it produced traumas that I think are, are still quite evident um, in the way that people are hesitant to mobilize to protest now. And of course, you know, those people don't get their lives back and their children don't get their parents back. And, you know, those are, those are scars that, uh, that will last a, a very, very long time. The book is going to be translated into Thai soon. You know, it's absolutely something that's it's important to me that is, is able to circulate. Uh, that That is the most important audience for the book, ultimately, even even as there are sort of professional considerations that make me direct it towards uh, sound studies and Asian studies first. That's That, I think, is ultimately my most important audience. At this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk about another of the main themes in the book, the question of constraint. And to put us in the mood, let's listen to one of the sonic niches you have recorded, this one taken from a red shirt rally. in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Benjamin Taussig about his book, Bangkok is Ringing, Sound, Protest and Constraint. Benjamin, the central theme of the book, which I think ties the material together, is uh, the theme of constraint, especially constraint of mobility, both political and sonic. Can you explain your argument here? 
So there, again, there's kind of a, uh, a sound studies and an Asian studies or Thai studies side to this, or perhaps it's a, an anthropology side to, to this argument or this uh, framework. As a sound studies point, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of material in the discipline that kind of valorizes sound in terms of its, its capacity for penetrating borders or crossing boundaries. Of course, that, that can be true, right? Like any of us who have ever had noisy neighbors know that, you know, the wall that keeps us from seeing our neighbors does not necessarily keep us from hearing our neighbors. So in some ways, sound does penetrate boundaries. But, you know, study acoustics for 10 minutes and you know that sound gets absorbed, that sounds run into each other, they fade over time, right? They don't last forever. So it's really a kind of an axiomatic point that sound doesn't transmit perfectly from someone communicating something to someone receiving something. There are all kinds of things that get in the way. And I think that's a point that really, really needs to be better articulated within sound studies. Uh, so I decided to really orient the book around that point for sound studies uh, in order to kind of argue against a number of the pieces that I quote in the introduction that I felt had been a bit too romantic about the possibilities of, of sound in, in this moment. In terms of speaking to the anthropology of the redshirt movement, it was something that's, that, that struck me after the rest of the book was written. So the introduction was written last and the title was written later. But anybody that spent any time, especially in a place like Bangkok, knows that your primary experience of being there is one of being stuck, right? It's particularly if you go places at, at a busy time. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable how stuck you can get going three miles ends up taking you an hour and a half and you try to figure out ways around it and there is no way around it, right? There is no mode of transportation that can really, that can solve that problem entirely. And it occurred to me after, you know, a year and a half of studying the redshirt movements and being immersed in it, that the, the movement was no different than any other kind of mobility within in the city. The movement, in fact, was using the very same spaces that commuters use, that the redshirts themselves, you know, when they were working at times that they weren't protesting, were also experiencing, right? There, there was nothing about the infrastructure of the city that paused for the redshirts. It was the same infrastructure. And they were often stuck in the same ways. So, you know, we would be moving from, say, Ratchabasong to Democracy Monument, and it would take forever because there was traffic. The redshirts had to, had to use the same channels that everybody else had to use, and they were just as stuck as everybody else. And that was a pretty clear metaphor for the attempts of the redshirts to try to change the political landscape of Thailand. And then I, I, after sort of thinking about it as a metaphor for a while, I realized that it wasn't actually a metaphor at all, but in fact was very much a part of the condition uh, of being a political actor in Thailand is navigating the literal infrastructure of the city. I guess sort of an absolute constraint on sound is silence. And that's, it's a theme you touch on in parts of the book. You mentioned it earlier. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on this theme of silence. Let's see. I'm thinking about where are the places that silence is evoked in the book, aside from the meditating protester. So in the introduction, I talk about coming upon a vehicle, which clearly was the property of, of a redshirt. And next to the vehicle, there were bloodstains on the sidewalk. It was evident that this was a redshirt protester who had been killed. His body had been collected from, from that point. The car itself, or the vehicle itself, I guess it was more of a truck than a car, had been covered in, not to say graffiti, but writing, right, from sympathetic redshirts. And I sort of came upon this, this vehicle and I read the messages that people had written to this, this dead protester. And it occurred to me that this, this protester's protests were now silent in this very particular way. Silencing, of course, comes up a 
lot metaphorically, but but I took it sort of literally in that moment. And I thought about what this silence contained and what our responsibilities are as, as anthropologists to reckon with the silence, right? With the non-presence of, of the sound of this person, right? Surely this person had made sound. He probably had not been recorded. There probably would be no way to trace that sound literally, right? To, to recover it in sort of any precision. But, but that troubled me, right? The idea that this person having been silenced means that there's nothing to recover really troubled me. And I started looking into a lot of work about archival silences, and there's some really good stuff. Uh, Cydia Hartman, uh, among others, has written about sort of how we resurrect absences in the archive and how we think about silences. So if that's the kind of silence that you're referring to, that's, you know, that, that was a major theme, right? I was thinking about how to, how to contemplate sounds that, that were not necessarily apparent to our ears. Yes, it was. There was another one I was thinking about, of course, that is uh, silence in relation to the monarchy, which is really closely bound up in these protests as a result of the Les Majesty law. Would you be able to say a few words on that theme? Yeah, that was a certain kind of silence. That was much more of a metaphorical silence because people weren't actually silent at all. That was a kind of a, a spatialized silence, meaning that there were certain spaces where you could not speak about the monarchy, but there were others where you could. And increasingly over the course of the redshirt movement, those spaces were were pretty large and became a kind of a generally acceptable thing to the point where even in public, you would get this coded language uh, and these coded expressions of, of resistance against the monarchy that the police were and the military were constantly tracking and trying to get ahead of and sometimes succeeding and, and sometimes not. It was a remarkable thing to be in the middle of Ratchabasong and to hear these these chants, which right, everybody knew what they were about, but they were not prosecutable in, the, in that moment. That kind of silence was a, a kind of a temporary silence or a tense silence, right? Silent in some places, not silent in others. You argue that sound and music uh, linked to class were politicised. Can you explain how? For example, I was wondering whether the, the sound environment, if we can call it that, of the progressive protesters differed from the sound environment of the more conservative protesters. I'm not sure that I would divide them into progressive and conservative camps. I mean, I think there was there, there was implicitly a lot of political weight in the sound of the redshirt movement, simply in the space of Rajprasong. Um, this has been written about Eli Elinoff and Claudio Soprenzetti write about this, among others, that just simply to be present in the kind of high-end commercial spaces of downtown Bangkok was an, an inversion, right? It was a, uh, a kind of a class inversion as well as a spatial inversion of the country, a kind of a symbolic reordering of Thailand. And sound had a, had a major, major role to play in that. The way that Ratchaprasong sounded when there were protests versus the way that it sounded when there weren't is something that I tracked very carefully. And there's a deliberate effort, right, on the part of the mall, on the part of the EMA, to, you know, to have this kind of like low hum in, you know, the spaces of, this, of the sky train and the walkways and the streets where, you know, the moneyed classes can kind of, can kind of move. Uh, often above the dirt and grit of the city. And for the red shirts to show up and just to sort of like use coarse language, right, to like often speak Isan, to play rural music, right, to play Duktung and Malam, was itself a very politically loaded inversion of the political order and the hierarchy of the country. So on its face, I think there was a lot there. You know, it intensifies when you think about the content of the music that people were playing. And here I'm just talking about music and not other forms of sound. Of course, we could go even further with this. But, you know, people like James Mitchell have argued that Luktung actually conveys a, a pretty powerful politics, even when the lyrics themselves are not explicitly about politics. You get all these songs 
whose lyrics lament the immorality of Bangkok, the ways that like Isan is this moral center, this place of, uh, of, of home, of religion, of kinship, and Bangkok is this place of money and greed. So even to have Luktung be present as a genre in these places was already to sort of like port this critique that's all over the genre, right? That's, that's just an inherent part of it into the spaces of the capital in this very loud, very assertive way. Of course, not everybody was playing Luktung, right? There were others who were conveying politics differently through music. So, for example, you had a lot of protesters who were a little bit older, who were primarily relying on Tlingpadachibi, which, of course, spans the period of the 1960s through the 1990s, right? It was like the key genre of, 19, of, of Black May, 1992. So these older protesters were using that in a way that drew on the politics of anti-government protests past, at, at times even a kind of a leftist politics. And then you had a whole other set of protesters who were basically playing rap and hip hop, which I think at the time was still kind of evolving as a, a mode of political speech. I think as of 2018 and 2019, particularly with rap against dictatorship, that's kind of like come more into into fruition. But at the time it was it was very much developing and you did hear it, right? So you'd hear a fair amount of hip hop too. So you had all these different genres, all of them expressing their politics in particular ways. I understand that you've studied the relationship between sound and political protests in other places as well, including the American Midwest. Apart from the obvious differences in styles of music, language and so on, could you tell us whether there are any significant differences between the politics of sound in, in these places and in Thailand? Could the, the Thai case fit into a general theory of sound and political mobilization? I do think the Thai protests expressed something very generalizable at that time. You know, the way that protest sound circulates is very dependent on media. And I think that we can look to multiple places and, and see similarities between how protest was operating sonically around 2010. The, the major movements, I guess, that I would flag from that time would be the Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street, uh, and Thailand. There, there might be some others I'm forgetting as well. But these, uh, these very particular kinds of, you know, taking over a, a town square, often proximate to a, a center of capital, but simultaneously being hyper aware of the possibilities of media representation, you know, kind of staging the protests as much as anything for, for Twitter and for Facebook, which at the time were weaker technologies than they are today, but were already sort of available. I think things are probably a little bit different now. i not fully prepared to sort of offer a theory of, of how and why, but I do think that the available media kind of ultimately make the biggest difference there. And I, I would suggest that the reason that there are so many similarities between the way that the Arab Spring, the protests in Bangkok and Occupy Wall Street operated is because it's precisely because of the media that were that were available. The cops and other contrarian forces in in all of those places operated in really different ways. And I spent a lot of time at Occupy Wall Street as well um, after coming back. And that was, a, that was a different world. I mean, the cops were much more effective there from a much earlier point in the movement. And there was much less possibility for broadcasting within Occupy Wall Street. Like people had to get a lot more creative, but you still saw sort of similarities between, for example, like the people's microphone, right? Which was communicative, but was also sort of meant precisely to convey the smallness of the movement, right? Relative to these behemoths of capital, which is the same, exactly the same thing that the red shirts were, were frequently doing, using quiet and silence to, to suggest their own smallness for the eye and ear of the media. 
At the end of your book, you have a very funny anecdote about your encounter with, of all people, Mark Zuckerberg in a Bangkok backstreet. Could you tell the listener what happened? This is very late in the research, maybe a couple of months before we left. And Mark Zuckerberg was in town for a friend's wedding. Like one of the other Facebook founders was getting married to a Thai woman. And it was all over the newspapers that he was in town. We lived in Tongla. And we knew that he was around. We had no particular interest in finding him, but we happened to find him. Uh, we went out to dinner and trying to go to a restaurant where it turned out he had rented the whole restaurant. And so we weren't allowed in. But as we walked away from the restaurant, we turned around and just were suddenly face to face with Mark Zuckerberg and shouted something at him, maybe. Then we went to a restaurant and asked the waitress if she, you know, we sort of told her about this incredible story. And she didn't know who Mark Zuckerberg was. I, I think she maybe didn't know what Facebook was. And and that was a really amazing moment that reminded me that, that social media were not ubiquitous and that there really was a very strong class dimension to their availability, especially around that time. There was this kind of assumption that everybody was on Facebook and everybody was on Twitter. And that that's not true, of course. That changed, however. And I think I, I'm happy about the way that the conclusion reads now, because I do think that social media have become more ubiquitous. I mean, that's borne out by data. It is harder to get away from them. And even though it remains true that you don't want to gauge political opinion based on what people say on Twitter, right? Because it's still is a particular demographic that's using it, right? It's not everybody. It is in fact the case that kind of everyone is sucked into it now in ways that they weren't in, in 2010 and 11. So I think that's been one of the major shifts since the time of the research, that then it was, it was very important to consider how different people were were hailed by different forms of media or, or employed different forms of media as, as a part of being involved in a protest. I think that's still true, true to a degree now, but there, is all, there are also ways in which now protests cannot happen out of view of the surveillance technologies of Silicon Valley. And that's really kind of what, where the conclusion was going. Your book has only just come out this year, in fact, but you did say that you're preparing a Thai language version. I was wondering if you'd had any feedback on the book from Thai scholars yet or from your Thai colleagues or friends. Yeah, and it's been very positive, which is great, because as I said, that's ultimately the most important audience to me. You know, I'm gratified by how legible it is because I worried that, you know, it would be inscrutable. But so far, people who have read it have given very good feedback. So I'm very excited about the Thai translation. I'm very optimistic about it. I'm also a little bit nervous because the book obviously touches on a number of themes related to the monarchy. It's not particularly cautious in that regard, and that's deliberate. So I'm curious to see what happens once it's translated into Thai. Have you got a sense yet of whether Thai readers or people who know about the book whether they're picking up on the same themes as, for example, a, you know, a Western audience might pick up, pick up on or, or something a little different or a bit of both? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've picked up on it. I mean, I, I suppose predictably Thai readers who, well, no, I was going to say that they've been more interested in the, the sort of the political part of it. But actually, that's not entirely true because I've had a number of Thai readers talk to me about the sound studies part. So, no, I'm not sure that, that I can really pick out a difference just yet. Before we conclude, we have a traditional question on this program. Could I ask you whether you're working on a new project? Of course you are. And if you could tell us perhaps uh, what it is, what it's about. Yes, I'm very excited about my new project. So thank you for asking. I am working on a, a quasi-historical project about the development of Bangkok and other parts of Thailand during the Vietnam War period. So what's called the American era. It's a musical project in the main, and it's about the ways that GIs who came to Bangkok and 
soldiers who were stationed at various Air Force bases consumed music within the context of nightlife at the time. So there are all these really interesting and rich musical interactions, uh, GIs going to bars, where there were all these Thai bands, uh, some of whom were playing covers of American music, some of whom were playing Thai music. It was this kind of cultural synchrony. And Thai music ended up taking a lot from particularly the psychedelic music that was available because GIs were bringing it. Uh, it was available at the uh, at the post exchange, right at the at the bases. You know, it was really like uh, like all these small towns, like in Isan, for example, had all this money uh, and were exposed to all this highly modern culture. So I'm looking at kind of the musical dimensions of that, thinking about various uh, interactions between Thai people and and Americans through the lens of uh, music. The project is also in in a lot of ways about listening and about the unevenness of listening within what I think of as very much as a, as a colonial encounter, the ways in which Thai people spent a lot of time and a lot of energy learning English, you know, and not just learning the language, but learning the particularities of, uh, of how Americans spoke and how they communicated. And Americans generally did not do the, the reverse. So I think of that as an interesting way to study the inequities of colonial or quasi-colonial encounter. It sounds like a, a wonderful project and look forward to the book and perhaps have you on the program again. Thank you, Patrick. Benjamin Talsig, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Bangkok is Ringing, Sound, Protests and Constraint, published this year, 2019, by Oxford University Press. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening to these sounds today. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also be interested in listening to Tyrrell Habercorn talking about her new book, In Plain Sight, Impunity and Human Rights in Thailand, or Andrew Walker's Thailand Political Peasants, Power in the Modern Rural Economy. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. And to take us out, let's listen to another of Benjamin Talsig's sonic niches, this one of some pin guitar playing. The pin is a musical instrument from uh, northeastern Thailand, and it often featured in red shirt rallies. We've added a link to some other sound clips that Ben has kindly made available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies webpage.